Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Welcome to Hoovering, the podcast about eating. I'm Jessica Bostecu. I love eating as much as anything else in the world, but also it sometimes brings me conflict, shame, and all sorts of other things that are rubbish. It's complicated and I think fascinating. This is a conversation with an interesting soul, not just about food, but about gobbling it up, or if you will, hoovering. Hello, Wonder Bums. You'll be delighted to hear that we're seeing January out in some serious style this year. This episode of Hoovering is a special one. Potentially, I mean, episodes with my son, Nana and Bum aside, um, I would say this is the most meaningful one for me that I've recorded to date. I have the absolute honour today of hoovering with none other than Elise Resch, the actual co-creator and founding foremother of Intuitive Eating. The OG. And as you'll hear, it was everything I could have ever hoped for, really. She is absolutely made of magic. Thank you for listening to Hoovering. Can you tell every other sausage about this podcast? I'd be very grateful. One way to do that is to subscribe to the podcast. That, I mean saves you admin anyway or to give it a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts go there and give it a five-star review if you've got spare actual money knocking about you can become a patron if you want go to patreon.com forward slash the hoovering pod and you'll get cool podcasty stuff in exchange for your hard-earned pennies things like um guest recipes once a month including one from me or one of my um beloveds um and we've just recorded Hoovering's fourth birthday party special, actually, with amazing former guests all together for a lunch of our dreams. Um, or, or I should say it's uh, we ate the lunch of our dreams in that moment, that day party. 
quite catchy, isn't it? Um, with extremely cool former hoovering guests from over the course of the last year, including Fatiha El Ghori, who, uh, if you remember that episode, is absolute blast, and uh, Siobhan McSweeney from Derry Girls, and um, the great British pottery throwdown. Anyway, that episode is um, going out shortly. Um, just for some of my patrons. It's exclusively just for some of them for at least the next six months, if that persuades you to join the Patreon. Um, I was going to say posse, but I just remembered it's 2022. I don't. I mean, if you are already a patron and now you've heard me say posse and you're thinking, I'm going to leave, I'm leaving her. I heard I heard her say it. Um, forget, forget that I said posse and listen to this other reason to stay or become my patron. There's also discount tickets for live shows and there's one coming up. It's on the 5th of February at the Leicester Comedy Festival at 5.30pm. That's a Saturday. You are free. We're going to have a pizza party. It's in Peter's Pizzeria in Leicester. We're going to have the best time. My guests are brilliant comedian and my close mate Jen Brister and... Bake Off finalist, the wonderful Leicester local, Chicks Palmer. Um, so come along to that. Also, if you're like, I'm afraid I live in New Zealand. Well, now, thanks to Next Up Comedy, you can also become a stream audience member for that show. Details of how to get tickets for that should be online at the Leicester website or on the Next Up website. If you can't find those, go to the podcast notes wherever you got this podcast from and you will find links to where to get tickets to Hoovering Live in person or Hoovering Live live streaming or indeed to any of my stand-up uh, comedy that's coming up that if you'd like to come and see me I'm working up a new show called Wench I've got previews throughout London and Leicester in February I'd love to have you at one of those as well right links to all of those things as ever in the podcast notes that's where to look all of that up but let's hoover let's get into this I've taunted you for long enough three and a half minutes um uh, Elise uh, chose peanut butter toast as our thing to taste and it was perfect really because she's in LA so um, she had it as brunch and I had it as my pudding to my dinner um it transpires peanut butter toast is the snack for all occasions oh hello lovely to virtually Hi, meet you Jess. how are you nice to meet you too I'm very well thank you I am um, I think there's something so bizarre about talking when you're at such different stages of your day because we're on the other side of the world from one another. But you're in the late morning and I'm in the yes. mid-evening. Right. Um, but we're both, because it's never not a great time to have, we're both having peanut butter on toast. <laughs> you want to hear a crunch? I want to <laughs> hear a crunch. Oh, it's a good noise. It's a joyful noise. I'm going for a crunch mm -hmm. here. Although I have, so I already ate my dinner. I don't mm. know what call it in the States, but um, so that, to make this feel like pudding, mm. I, put, um, I did peanut butter and then I put some maple syrup and some cinnamon on top of there. Delicious. And um, yeah, the, <laughs> the problem was in the tiny amount of time. I've just, I've there's not, there's only that bit left, <laughs> but there we go. It's okay. As long as mm. you heard my crunch. <laughs> oh yeah. Mm. That's good. I would never think to make that into a pudding thing. And that's a touch. Um, you have a lovely story for why we're eating that. Did you say it was your favorite breakfast as a child? 
Yes. And it just brought me back to memories of being a child and a teenager and my wonderful mother, who is unfortunately no longer with us Mm -hmm. and hasn't been for a long time, every morning would make me breakfast and say, can't I just make you some eggs? Can I make you something else? And it would always be, no, mom, I want my peanut butter toast every single morning. I love it. Every time I have peanut butter toast, which is every week, um, I think about my mother. Oh, that's really lovely. I um, it's lovely when there's um, oh, like a family connection to something like that. I have um, I had an Austrian grandmother, and so whenever I have anything Austrian or um, even something that reminds me a bit of Austria, so something anything flavored with Kirsch, that kind of cherry liqueur. Oh wow! Um, or I don't know. Have you ever had an Austrian biscuit? They're kind of like um, they're very soft and fluffy you can almost taste the flour and they're always covered they're not they look like they're going to be crunchier than they are they're soft and then they're covered in a really thick layer of icing sugar those make those things make me think i was in austria before the pandemic i took a a riverboat cruise up the danube and i was in a couple of little cities in austria i did have that chocolate thing that they're known for that chocolate cake but i didn't have those i didn't have a sack of torta is that what you had The Something chocolate, like that. I think it's like yes, a really, so. yeah. Um, Very rich. Yeah, it's really yeah. rich. And it's got like apricot jam in there somewhere in with all the chocolate or something. Mind-blowing. They Austrians really do cakes. They yes. do cakes and coffees very well. Thank goodness. And yes. with no judgment. And with, with no judgment. Right. No, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'll get straight into it. I feel so privileged to be talking to you at all. You're... It, uh, on your own website, it says the original intuitive eating pro, <laughs> which is such a lovely way of putting it. But you co-created Correct. this philosophy or working method, and you're a working nutritional therapist. Is that right? Uh, 40 years now. This year Incredible. is Incredible. 40 years. And it's my second career. I was an elementary school teacher beforehand and went back to graduate school. <gasps> That's incredible. A long oh, time wow. I've been doing this. Yes. I love it. You don't look old enough to have had two epic careers like that. But <laughs> I'll be 77 in March. So. Whoa. Oh, my crumbs. You look extraordinary. Um, you look amazing. That's blown my mind. Um, I, I, I need to thank you. I mean, just from a personal level, because intuitive eating has saved me from a life of misery. Um, and I stumbled my way into finding it. Um, and I've been over it as a result time and time again on this podcast. The podcast is four years old and anyone who's listened from the beginning will have heard my journey and be sick of me talking about it. So um, I, I won't get you... To, oh, we'll see. I think what I'd love to ask first is if yeah. you would give me the origin story of, of where where this theory of happiness and great relationship with eating came from. And I, and I don't mean, I think, just the how, but also the why. I, as in, I don't know if it was in response to the growing number of people with eating disorders and needing a more effective treatment for disordered eating, or whether it was just in response to the noise in the world, which doesn't seem sadly to have gone anywhere. Um, 
the unhelpful noise about weight loss being the end game for everyone, et cetera, et cetera. I, don't, I would love to know the whys as well as the how you guys came up with this amazing thing. Let me back up. When I did my training um, to be a registered dietitian, which is now registered dietitian nutritionist, that name was changed back a few years ago, uh, I wanted to have meaning in my life. And I was working with kids with developmental disabilities and running a feeding clinic for these kids and their families. And I intended to have that as my career. But I did get hired there after I did my training and I worked there for a while and I started my private practice. But here comes the but. I didn't get the referrals for that. I got referrals from, uh, well, because I think we have funny medical systems here and we have a, uh, something called the um, regional centers for developmental disabilities. And for whatever reason, they just didn't want to pay me to see their, to see that, you know, they pay me a minimal amount way below what I was able to, uh, what I needed to, to yeah. support myself and my office and all of that. So I got lots of referrals from physicians who were asking me to help their patients lose uh, well, let me, let me preface that. Help their patients uh, lower their cholesterol, lower their blood pressure, lower their blood sugar via weight loss. Right. And it really bothered me. I mean, it's just, even at that point, well before diet culture was even known to this world, you know, in a, with that name, it just didn't feel right to me. And probably because I had had my own eating disorder prior right. to going to graduate school, and that was a diet binge eating disorder. And I just didn't want any part of that. And I didn't know what to do. In graduate school, I'd been taught to help people be on meal plans with specific exchanges that came from the diabetic exchange system it had nothing to do with normal eating. Right. And I never called them diets. I always told my clients that... Um, you know, they had the freedom, they could switch out that apple for a cookie, but it was very limited. Mm-hmm. And I am embarrassed to say I weighed clients then. This is now this is close. 40 years ago. Yeah, okay, yeah. Years ago. So I have to have some grace and some, mm-hmm. you know, ability around the fact that um, we, ha- we have to learn. We have to yeah. know what we know. And in those years, that's what I had been taught. And as a result, they lost weight and their medical, you know, um, tests came out better, quote unquote. But then over time, they come back to me and say, oh, my goodness, I lost it. All. I gained it all back. You know, I lost my place in this in this meal plan and this weight loss. And I was very, very upset by that, including um, one day that I will never forget when I had a young woman come to me uh, and tell me that she could not stay on the quote unquote meal plan I had given her and that she was binging. And at that point, I didn't know what to do with that. I was just yeah stunned by it. So it took a few years to come to um, the understanding psychologically. And this came from reading some of the very early non-diet, not anti-diet as we call it today, but non-diet literature that pretty much said, if you tell people uh, to only have certain amounts or not to have certain things, they're going to rebel and they're going to binge. And that made a lot of sense to me psychologically. I was yeah. very interested in psychology. I was in therapy and I was read everything psychological I could. And it resonated with me. And I started to um, have a vision of writing a book that would help people 
essentially what's one of the principles of intuitive eating, make peace with food, mm-hmm. have food that they enjoy without guilt. And uh, now I will say at first as a dietitian, I thought, how can I tell people to eat whatever they want to eat? Because I know this foods have more nutritional value than others. But I had to get past that. And I, there's a phrase that I use um, called uh, emotional equivalency. So even though foods may not have nutritional equivalency, I am hoping that people will feel the same about themselves, regardless of their food choice. So, mm. you know, how people feel so good about themselves if they're eating vegetables and salads, and then they end up feeling bad about themselves if they're eating desserts. And yeah. I am helping people have the same emotional reaction, just pleased that they tuned in, they ate what, what was satisfying to them. In any case, I started um, putting some things on a computer, some uh, chapter headings, some ideas uh, that would help people get to that point of having, you know, satisfaction and joy in their eating. At the same time, my co-author was, um, she was using some space in my office. She lives an hour away and she was coming up to LA once a week and used some space in my office. And one day I saw her and could tell that she was upset about something and asked her about it. And she said, oh, I'm so frustrated. I'm writing this book with a psychologist. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't know how to write. And I just had this moment of being, I, I've read a lot of Virginia Woolf and there's something, it's in this yeah. moments of being where I just said, thought to myself, this is it. And I said to her, I'll write it with you. I knew I was a good writer. I was a minor in English in college and, and yeah. I knew I was very um, astute at psychological um, ideas. And I said, let I'll do it with you. And it turned out we started talking and she had some similar ideas. And so we collaborated. That was 1993. And it it took two years to write the first edition of Intuitive Eating. We're now in the fourth edition, which came out last year. So it's quite a phenomenon that for over now it's 27 years that Intuitive Eating has only grown and grown in popularity and acceptance and um, really as a solution to the um, trauma of dieting and the yeah. toxicity of dieting and diet culture. And it's fascinating. I mean, it's extraordinary that it's gone from strength to strength. And it's, and it's certainly in the UK, I mean, at the moment, I feel like there's this, there's a really growing awareness. It's part of a big... It's part of whatever wave of feminism is happening now. And in the UK at the moment, we're in a a sweet spot in the sense that it's pretty cool and normal to put your hand up and say, I am a feminist, etc. You know, like it's a lovely time. Um, I also co-host a much bigger podcast called The Guilty Feminist. And, you know, it's all about our pitfalls as a feminist, etc. But I think part of intuitive eating is is entering the public psyche via the mediums of body neutrality, body positivity, etc. all very kind of like buzzy, positive, rising things. And there's so much hope in that. Um, but similarly, at the same time, I think it needs acknowledging, it still feels like a bit of David and Goliath in the sense that the diet industry has, <laughs> you know, weaponized social media and, and, and it hasn't gone anywhere. You know, the fight is 
without doubt still ongoing. I have a couple of responses. I am one of your old school feminists from the second wave of feminism. I lived through that in the 70s. And I think that that has informed a lot of my work and a lot of my beliefs. I mean, we just do not want to be told what size we should be, what clothes we should wear, you know, what we should should look like, what we should look like. Exactly. And um, so yeah, there's yes to that. In terms of the David and Goliath, you're right. It's a over seven billion dollar a year uh, industry. You know, industrial complex, diet, diet culture, the wellness industry—they're all tied up together. And yet, intuitive eating is, you know, it's just known now to be the way out of it. I get requests for interviews at least three times a week, and podcasts wow. I doing one or two a week. Uh, from some of the major news outlets, I just uh, had an article in the Wall Street Journal just that came out a couple of days ago and just got a uh, request for something on public radio. And yeah, why? Why are they asking for this? Because they know it is so important mm-hmm. and it's the way to fight against diet. So maybe David's getting a little older and taller and bigger. Yes. <laughs> And also, I think people, you know, even in the most, I mean, I'm a stand up by trade and I've, um, you know, increasingly over time, you know, as I've made my peace with my relationship with with eating and um, I found it easier and more kind of pertinent to do even you can make comedy out of it because it's there's a even if you just look at it from the face value of the fact that, well, people, especially women, but people generally have been on every diet that's been invented so far. They've tried them all. And it's not worked. Right. And, and and nobody's become more healthy or more well. It's not worked. So there's this just, even if you, uh, <laughs> there's such overwhelming statistical evidence now. Right. That, this, yeah. that living in a cycle of restriction and binging is not effective, even if you have no interest in taking into account people's health in the broader um, holistic sense it it doesn't and, and change so many physically. reasons physiological neurochemical psychological reasons why diets don't work i just mm-hmm. a sidebar as a stand-up do you know who margaret cho is yes she's so, amazing well i remember she had something a lot of years ago go called the fuck it diet and she yes. said that um she had had bulimia she made it that public and starving and binging and she finally just said I said, fuck it, and I'm going to eat whatever I wanted. And it was healing for her eating disorder. This is many years ago. Amazing. And I thought, wow. I mean, I thought, have you read intuitive eating? And she, yeah. like she, she may have. But in, in any case, yes, diets do not work. The research shows that 98% of people who go on diets to lose weight gain the weight back. Um, and at least two-thirds of them gain even more weight back after at least a couple of years. But what's really, um, well, I could get, if you want me to, I can get into the reasons why they don't work. But what I want to say is that what's underlying that is, um, to me, a social justice issue. Mm -hmm. It is oppression. It is stigmatizing to people who are uh, living in larger bodies, who are born in larger bodies, who are meant to be in larger bodies. And they are constantly fighting against the weight bias and weight stigma in culture. And so perpetuating any kind of diet is really perpetuating oppression. And I believe in every way, all people deserve dignity and respect and individuality. And, and so it makes me very angry that diets even exist. So yeah, 
kind of went off on a tangent. but <laughs> No, I loved it. And I love it. And I love the passion. And I love that that's still there after decades working in this. I mean, I mean and on that note, then let's, let's, um, let's talk a bit about the health at every size movement, which I know you're a um, proponent, proponent. Yeah, proponent of, advocate of. Yes. Um, and I think, so this is a campaign group essentially advocating for um, a fair treatment for people yeah. in all bodies of all sizes. Um, exactly. And uh, to, to put it very broadly, there's more to it than that. There's a brilliant website and I'll link to everything in um, in the podcast notes. Um, but I think what's in, for me very interesting about the existence and the brilliance of this movement is it helps, it's a go-to uh, response when, I don't know if you are, how regularly you're challenged with this. I find quite often I get... Uh, you know, con- emails, DMs from people saying my issue with fat activism or my issue with being anti-diet, etc., is it's not healthy. And mm. it's like, no, it's, it is actually. <laughs> it's, um, it fundamentally is exactly what health is to me. This- yeah, they're forgetting about mental health, you see. Yeah. Um, and they don't seem to understand that weight is not equated to health, that there are so many factors that affect one's mental and physical health that have absolutely nothing to do with weight. Yeah. They have to do with weight stigma. They have yeah. to do with the, the um, trauma that comes and the stress that comes with people who are always believing that they're not good enough at their size and they're, you know, looking at one diet after another and are hearing all kinds of negative comments and their cortisol levels are, you know, very high and cortisol comes from stress and it is, uh, a health issue when you have high cortisol. It's pro-inflammatory. And so um, that's just a, a misconception that health at every size or acceptance of all size bodies is quote unquote not healthy. And I do want to clarify that health at every size is not saying that any person, every person can achieve being healthy. It means doing whatever they can do regardless of size to bring more um joy and health to their lives, mental health to their lives. Uh, Some people are born with a condition that would be considered unhealthy and they won't ever be quote unquote healthy by the standard of what, you know, health is meant to be. So it's really about what can you do for yourself? And so many people in larger bodies um, feeling so bad about themselves, worrying about going to the doctor and being told that they have to lose weight or worrying about going outside and exercising, getting comments about themselves. Do not do those health promoting activities or or behaviors such as getting checkups at the doctor. Mm -hmm often early signs of certain illnesses are lost because they're not going there. They're afraid of, of that stigma at the doctor's office. They're not moving their bodies because they feel ashamed and embarrassed. And movement is, you know, just part of it's natural from time we're born to be moving our bodies around. So, yeah. Yeah. There's an extraordinary amount of work to be done in terms of, uh, that, the, the general misconception that thinness equals health. I think, um, Again, I feel like that's so, it's really new news and it still feels quite transgressive, certainly in the UK, to be shouting about that, which is extraordinary, really. Um, But thankfully, there's sort of an ever increasingly articulate and vocal minority sort of shouting that 
truth ultimately well, you know one um, of the we're fighting also is the medical community that seems yeah. to be you know attached to the ridiculous bmi as a measure of health which is you know there's it is no that measure. makes me makes my blood boil Right, exactly. Me too. Yeah. And, you know, and seems to believe there's so much fat phobia in the medical community. Not all doctors. I've met some wonderful yes. doctors who aren't that way. But so many who just believe that no matter what condition you have, it's due to your weight. And so fix your weight, which is, you know, the Hippocratic Oath is to do no harm. And they are mm-hmm. doing harm every single time they tell somebody that they need to go out and lose weight. Yeah. It's just a setup for failure and, and uh, lower self-esteem and higher cortisol levels, et cetera. Not healthy. Yeah. Say scrum diddly umptious. No. And then you can be in my podcast. Scrum diddly umptious. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. I'd love to ask how you feel about, and I suppose cope with, the fact that intuitive eating has been sometimes hijacked by the diet and wellness industries and manipulated (laughs) into, you know, other diets, ironically, or pay. I mean, it must be, there was recently a big celebrity endorsed a, and I've, even in in looking up to to fact check that, I realised that they're not the first to endorse I mean, the, I, it's hard to even say, but intuitive fasting. Well, I of- laugh at that one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I intuitively fast when I'm sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> kind of unconscious. I'm yeah. not eating then. But you have to think about why are they co-opting intuitive eating? And I think yeah. it's they're very threatened by it. You know, here's this $7 billion plus a year industry that is based on failure, based on yeah. putting people on diets where they'll fail and come back to the next one and buy all the accoutrements that go with the diets, you know, the, the gadgets, the food, the the books, the apps on their phones. And here's a process that says you can start to learn to trust yourself. You do not need to have anything extraneous other than your own trust in your internal wisdom. So I think they're very threatened by that. And they want to be on the bandwagon. You know, they see the popularity. 
of intuitive eating. And it's like, oh, I want to be there too. So I think that's yeah. what's happening. And so you asked me how I felt. Furious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your, your blood boils, my blood boils. And, yeah. and co-author also. And we have consulted with attorneys to see what we can do. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. we don't have that kind of power and money to fight them. Yeah. You know, these of are big course. industries. And so we just have to keep putting the word out in every way we can, social media on talks and podcasts in every way we can. And yeah. books. Yeah. 100%. And it's funny that I think you're spot on that they must feel threatened by the success of right. this movement because ultimately, just generally, I suppose, it's not great for capitalism, is it? Because if women, I say women generally, if people, if people are happy, then there's not much left to sell us. <laughs> and it's it's well, terrifying, it must be terrifying. Well, right. And it is definitely capitalism. It's how much money can they make making us feel bad about ourselves. Or and- keeping us miserable. I think there's something this, if you have a satisfied person who's, I mean, I don't know, they can still make quite a lot of money out of selling me peanut butter and toast but but, um, yeah i won't be shopping on goop for those things yeah no um fascinating um i would love to know i think uh, it's perhaps a more of a sideline question i'm not going to get you to go into the details of intuitive eating because there are 10 principles and they're so easy to find on your website and i can link to that and i'm sure you've gone over it a hundred times i feel like i've spoken about it on this podcast so many times, but I would love to know, um, because I'm what maybe between three and four years in, um, to intuitive eating and you, you've been practicing this and preaching it for so much longer. I would love to know if there've been any ways in which eating with that, under that framework, with that mindset, with that freedom has affected your attitude towards anything else in terms of the way you live, because I've noticed that just in a few years. I love that question because many, many years ago, I thought, well, my next book's going to be Intuitive Living. And I think there is actually some book titled that. Absolutely, it's about being so tuned in and aligned to this inner wisdom and trusting your intuition on other aspects of life, how how relationships feel to you, how work feels mm-hmm. to you, um, and recognizing that you know inside. I mean, we are very wise inside of us. And we tend to not trust um, this intuition, this inner wisdom about other things. So yes, absolutely. It does affect every other aspect of my life. And I've certainly made changes in my life based on the fact that something wasn't feeling right for me, including my career. As I said, I I was a teacher, which I loved for a few years, but I didn't want to do it for the rest of my life. Although I am teaching every day with my clients in certain ways. But um, And it led me to going back to graduate school, you know, at a later point in my life. And so, uh, yeah, listening to that intuition is very important. I think it's like it sets this ball rolling, doesn't it, really? I've I've had to have a few years to take stock of all the things that have changed. But, yeah, I think I I have a six-year-old. I think I parent more intuitively. I let go of supposed rules and norms and expectations and perfectionisms and all of those things. It's fascinating. Let me tell you about a new book that just came out last week, which I fortunately didn't have to write, but I did write the foreword and I did consult with the authors. It's called How to Raise an Intuitive Eater. And it's brilliant. It's brilliant. It really looks at the parents' responsibility for healing their own relationship with food and their bodies. Because we, you know, little kids are just modeling 
their parents. And um, if you're, uh, you as a parent are unhappy with yourself and your body and your food, your child's going to pick that up. And that's just headed right down the road to an eating disorder. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I'm 100% buying that because, in fact, I wanted to touch on it. Like, I don't, there's obviously an element of modeling your behavior that your child will see. And I know, you know, I've, 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 I've spoken to somebody at least once a week for four years for this podcast about the relationship with eating. And, um, you know, the things I've, you, the, the stories you hear about people who lived with a dieting parent or a fat phobic parent or, However, you know, there's so many ways in which you can get it wrong as a parent, even just when it comes to eating. And I'm trying so hard, but I definitely, I definitely need a book because also, (laughs) well, I need more guidance, I should say, because even, even if everything you model is okay, you know, you do your best, you're doing everything you can well, they still have to live in this noisy, broken world. And his language, even at six, you know, he came home um, from a. He came home from a. Somebody was looking after him uh, for for me for a few days, and on the first day, it's two days. The first day, I picked him up, and um, I said to the to the childcare person, I I didn't ask if I was meant to bring lunch for him, and they said, Oh, don't worry about it. You can if you like, but don't worry. You know, it will be fine. And as we got in the car, he said, Hey, don't bring me. Don't. <laughs> He's quite cheeky. But he was like, Don't bring. <laughs> Um, don't bring lunch tomorrow for me. And I said, why? You know, and he went, because if you don't, I get a treaty lunch. Oh my goodness. What do you mean a treaty lunch? And you know, it turns out um, that he'd had like chocolate spread and jam on toast and used a bread he liked that we don't have at home. And I was like, okay, well, you know, we do have jam and we have chocolate spread, you know. He was just like, I don't think, could I ask you for those? I was like, yeah, sometimes, whatever, you know. It's really tricky, I think, to tie that balance. And also there've been times where other family members have, once in particular, I remember where a family member started talking about the calorie, the calorific content of what they had made and were serving us for lunch. And I I could feel my bum clench, you know, I was like, oh God, but it's not some of my sons around all the time. I didn't want to rock the boat, you know, and, and full disclosure, probably part cowardice. I just didn't bring it up at the time. And um, I thought I just... I, I just, you know, even just a little, I could have just done a little, oh, I, I don't really talk like that around him. <laughs> I don't, I, those are, that's, I don't think that's useful language around eating around him. I could have said that. I, I just had to regret it after. There's, it's so hard when there's all that noise in the world. And I think the other thing that's hard is, you know, when your child is very small, they don't get to choose what they eat. You do well, that for them, right? Right. When they're very tiny, you're the parent, the, the yeah. caregiver is responsible for, you know, getting the food and presenting the food. And so that's why you have to fi- fix your own relationship with food. So you're not creating yeah. some deprivation. Yeah. I mean, like, even your child, where you're so open-minded about it, is has some feeling that he can't get what he wants to have. Oh, yeah. No. And that's it. And it's about power over things. And, and, and as an intuitive eater, I regularly think... It must be awful to be six because you don't get to choose everything you have for every meal. You're not in charge of the shopping, even just from the base level of that. You know, he's not, you know, he, he contributes to the shopping list, but he's not going there. It's not his, you know, he's not it, it, right. diminishing levels of power. And even if, 
I mean, I've, there are ways to make it, especially, you know, to go, well, here, this drawer, you can help yourself anytime to anything in this drawer. And when it's gone, it's gone. We can restock it or whatever, you know, try and involve power and hit, hit, get him to make as many choices as you can. But ultimately, even then, you know, he'll throw some things in your, <laughs> he'll throw some things in your face. Like, and he does things, he does interesting things, even just to test babysitters. The other night he ate six bananas with a, I came <laughs> home and was like, this, have all the bananas gone? And he said, yeah, I mean, I, and there was a rule put in place that it would be just fruit. You can only have fruit because it was quite late. So he just ate all the fruit. <laughs> Look at how, what a strong ego he has and what an autonomous yeah. child. What a great job you've done in allowing him to speak up and, you know, be a little rebellious. And, yeah. and I think it's so funny because, you know, um, it's typically, no, you can't have all these cookies, but here it is. He can, he'll eat all the bananas just to show you he'll do whatever he wants to do. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. Probably I mean, if anything, just, from that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, but it, it was worth it. I imagine for the emotional well-being of having, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, of having a, one, a tiny mini, mini battle in his mind. <laughs> right. Would you say that there's anyone ever who intuitive eating isn't a good idea for? <laughs> no, no. I, think that, uh, I think that we have to look at the nuances of intuitive eating. Not every person is able to trust, you know, hunger and fullness, which people mm. think it's the hunger and fullness diet. It's intuitive eating is only about hunger and fullness. I was just doing an interview with someone who told me that she had ADHD and because of her medication, she didn't feel hunger during the day. And I've had a number of clients like that. Well, that's where we use the cognitive part of our mind. Uh, and let me back up a minute and tell you that my favorite definition of intuitive eating is a dynamic interplay of instinct, emotion, and thought. And that's connected to three parts of our brain that we use every day. One part, which is um, called the reptilian brain, or it's the survival part of the brain. It is the instinctual part. Uh, it's what dinosaurs use to stay alive, to get the instinct to go and eat uh, little dinosaurs, you know, and stay alive. That is in us as humans, right? Right at the top of our brainstem. And that is basically what keeps us alive, which, which sends us to go eat. And mm-hmm. also there's signals of fullness and what we like and don't like there. And then on top of that, we have the limbic brain or the uh, mammalian brain, which is the seat of emotions and emotional and uh, social behaviors. And that sits on top of that um, reptilian brain and surrounds it. And very often our emotions will affect our hunger and uh, our fullness and great anxiety. Sometimes your appetite goes away. And in terms of physiology, sometimes you're not getting the signals because of a medication. Mm-hmm. So then yeah. the third part of our brain that we use is the cognitive part or the neocortex, which separates us from cats and dogs. We have the ability to have rational thought. And well, some of my clients think their dogs do have that, but in any case... <laughs> So in when when you ask me, is it available to everybody? Yeah. So much of intuitive eating is available to everyone because you can access these three parts of the brain. And so if you're not getting these signals of hunger, 
or usually fullness you do get, but the hunger, then you think to yourself, well, I still need to eat anyway. You know, in fact, yeah. I have worked with some clients who have had COVID who have lost their taste and their smell and, and really terrible, no appetite, no interest in eating. And yet they must feed themselves because yeah. the thinking part of their mind says, I'm, I must take care of myself. So, um, but aspects of intuitive eating in terms of making peace with food, making all foods, as I said, emotionally equivalent, having respect for your body, speaking up to the food police. And although you had that situation the other day, but uh, being able to say, no, I don't want to talk about this or I don't want to hear about this or, mm-hmm. you know, this is not what I believe in. Uh, learning how to tune into your body in other ways uh, is, is available for everyone. It's just it's not all or nothing is the point. Yeah. Oh, so beautifully put. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, would you talk to me about eating growing up? I would love to know. You said you had an in- your incredible mom was offering you things other than peanut butter and things like that. Did you have siblings? Were you a fussy eater as a child? It sounded like perhaps you enjoyed ritual in your eating as a child. I loved food and I yeah. eat my breakfast and get to school and at recess time buy a sweet roll or a grilled cheese sandwich and eat the lunch. She always sent me a lunch that had a sandwich and some chips and some cookies and some fruit and some vegetables, you know, wide variety. My mother had no eating disorder, disordered eating. And partly I think it's because she had a hyper metabolic, uh, hyper metabolism due to hyperthyroidism. Uh-huh. And so she never was, she was never in that mode of, Oh, I've got to change my body. So mm-hmm. she never had any negative thoughts about food. And when I get home from school, Oh, I do remember at lunchtime at school, after I'd eat my lunch, I'd go and I'd buy some popcorn or some candy or some ice cream and come home from school. And there were always things in the kitchen to eat. So I had a very healthy and natural relationship with food as a kid. Glorious. Didn't know until college that uh, what we eat might have any impact on the size of our bodies. Okay. I didn't get that in high school. I didn't hang with the kids that were, if they were talking about diets, this is a long time ago also, Jess. So it wasn't until I got to my first semester of college, my first day actually going to classes and I went into the cafeteria to pack my lunch to take to school and I'm in the line and I'm making this big, beautiful tuna sandwich on a big Kaiser roll with a big mound of tuna, you know, full of mayonnaise. Mm. And this girl behind me goes, Oh my God. And I was like, what, what is there a fly in my sandwich? And she she said, no, that's so fattening. And I, I was, I didn't understand it. So my eating was pretty um, normalized until I got involved with a family that was very orthorexic meaning totally into health food uh, Mm -hmm. for the purpose of trying to control life and control health. And so I started uh, eliminating some things out of what I was eating because they were telling me it wasn't healthy, which was still fine until years later um, in my late twenties, I had, I have a son who is 50 now and I had uh, wanted to have another child and I thought, well, I'll just lose a little bit of weight. Now, remember, this is before graduate school, before psychotherapy, any of that. I'll lose a little weight before I get pregnant and we don't have enough time to go through the details of it, but I will tell you, I never got pregnant again because I was starving myself. And I learned in graduate school after that, that even one pound of weight loss a week can cause infertility. And that was the beginning of my eating disorder. 
and I, you know, was restricting and then eventually I was binging and then I'd have to restrict to counteract what you were saying earlier. Mm -hmm. There's always going to be a, a, you know, a rebound from that. So I had a very healthy relationship with food. Then I had a very uh, orthorexic relationship with food. And then I had an eating disorder. And then I made, talking about intuition, I made so many changes in my life uh, when I got out of graduate school that I was healed. I was also in psychotherapy. And uh, there was no one who was dealing with eating disorders at the time. It was just simply that I, you know, learn more about my inner world. And I haven't had a problem with eating in 40 years. So uh, that's maybe answer your question, I think. That's a joyful answer to the question. Yeah. Amazing. Um, I love it. Was there, has there ever been, I've not asked this question for a long time, but it popped to my mind. Um, and I used to ask it all the time. Has there ever been an event like a birthday or a wedding or similar that you remember, or a holiday that you remember particularly because of the eating for good or bad reasons? Oh, I have a story for you. So when I was in the midst of my restriction and Mm -hmm. eating very limited foods each day and only letting myself have a real meal on Saturday night, my, um, my husband at the time, at the time, uh, (laughs) was uh, working for a law firm. And one of his uh, partners was dating Gloria Steinem. When you talk about feminism, the queen of feminism. And uh, he came home and he said, there's going to be a dinner next Wednesday night honoring Gloria Steinem because she's in town. And I panicked. I thought, how can I go there? Because I won't be eating the exact foods that I had allowed myself to eat. And I struggled for quite a while. And I finally, thank goodness, the healthy part of me won out. And I said, how could I miss an opportunity to meet, to meet Gloria Steinem? And I went to the party and I ate normally and nothing terrible happened. The world didn't explode because I ate a normal meal. I'll never forget that, how powerful the eating disorder was in almost keeping me from some incredible you know, experience. So that's one thing that I remember in terms of how food was connected with an event. Yeah. Um, other than that, I don't know. I love the food at parties or at, you know, events or at weddings, things like that. So, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's extraordinary, isn't it? And I've it's been a long time since I've panicked about not going to restaurants and things like that. And I think it's still, oh, I still have dear close friends who every now and again will say, oh, I can't come for lunch. I'm not eating today. And you think, oh, God. You know, and, but increasingly now, the further into my enlightenment I get, the more that pains me. I think I naively would be like, oh, well. And now you think, oh, well, you're not very well. And I, now that, I find that very sad if people well, are making I, those I remember choices. having made a friend, oh, gosh, so long ago, uh, who told me about this program she was in where she could only eat three meals a day at certain times and uh, she wasn't allowed to eat in between or after, and, and she wasn't allowed any dessert. And I was stunned by it. It's like, what? And um, we went out and ate at the time she could eat and mm. ate whatever she thought she was allowed to. A couple months later, she said to me, let's go out and get dessert. And I was, what? I thought you weren't allowed to eat dessert. And she said, oh, I'm done with that program. And we went out and she bought, she ordered two great big desserts and, you Mm -hmm. know, like she had never had it before because she had not been allowing herself. It's, yeah, it's so sad when people get tied up in that and they're not free to just eat in tune with their bodies. Yeah, totally. And miss out on Mm -hmm. incredible chance to meet Gloria Steinem. (laughs) 
No kidding. I got to meet her a couple of times after that. She was at conferences. I went up and talked to her. She's just such a wonderful woman. So I love it. Thank I love you. it. Yeah. What a great story. I'm glad you went. I'm so glad you went. Um, some of the silly things I ask everybody on this podcast now. Um, five second rule, yes or no? Do you know what that means? Uh, oh, the five second, you mean drop it on the floor? Yeah. Drop it on the floor. Oh, What's gonna happen? gosh, if my floor's just been cleaned, I pick it up and I eat it. <laughs> Love to <laughs> Not worried about that. We're too, we're too sterile. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there any a food that you think demands to be eaten in a particularly ritualistic way? Um, there's often, uh, people have given the answer, a Big Mac. There's confectionery often comes up. Chocolate often comes up specific things oh, no, i have, have no ritual food. I, no? Eat what I want when i want it i um the goal of intuitive eating one of the goals is to get the most satisfaction out of eating so i yeah. eat. it's not a ritual it's more of a consciousness of making sure i eat what i want to eat when i have a, a an appetite i'm comfortably hungry i'll get more satisfaction i pay mm. attention to what i'm eating which doesn't mean i don't read the newspaper or i can i can even watch a yeah. tv show and still have you know, my uh, attention to my food and notice when I'm getting full and sometimes I get too full and it doesn't feel good, but it, you know, yeah. it passes. No, I have no rituals around that. Oh, I love that. You know, you've made me think of something that's really, that doing this podcast as well as eating intuitively has, it, something I noticed that really tickles me is that if I am comfortably hungry and eating, and especially because I eat on this podcast with people. Sometimes right. we have lunch or whatever. I um, It took me a long time to realize that actually, if I am going to ask any interesting questions, let alone listen properly to the answers, then there just has to be a quiet bit while I just actually well, deal with the hunger initially. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> and I have... Um, I think I've just had to put my hands up to being a much less skillful multitasker than I previously thought that I was. The purpose of that, I will say this, is that it gives you more satisfaction in your eating if you're not eating yeah. in a way that isn't noticing that you're eating. People get on the telephone, yeah. they start eating, and they get off the phone, and they don't even know where the food went. So, Yeah. Oh, I love it. Mmm. Delicious. Socks turn evil. They grow curly moustaches and British accents and laser guns and they start absolutely tearing the world up. At first people think it's a bit funny and maybe a dream until they realise it's strangely humiliating cartoon-like apocalypse. Luckily the socks have agreed to stop this mayhem, this deadly mayhem, but only if you, and weirdly it does have to be you, agree to paint all the ceilings in Buckingham Palace up ladders the whole time with no breaks and yeah that's right I'm talking two coats of paint on every ceiling with absolutely no um, breaks at all uh, and you can imagine how fussy those guys are about how perfect the ceiling is there's probably this and they're probably sort of weirdos that actually look up and you get no breaks at all it sounds impossible but you do it you're a hero your reward in reality is the adulation of all people for all time for having saved us from the sock apocalypse. Your reward in the moment and bearing in mind you're so hungry because you've been up a ladder for hours and hours is the feast of your dreams. Now, this is a fantasy feast. Okay. So I don't, I don't, it's not to do, the quantities are irrelevant. I don't care about, I. it goes without saying when I'm talking to you, but generally to guests, I would say I'm not interested in ethics environmental impact consequence i don't 
I'll be furious if you worry about health, mm-hmm. nutrition, blah, blah, blah. I want to just know that in this fancy situation, it's the opposite of a last meal because I'm interested in you visualising being both the happiest and the hungriest you've ever okay. been. Quite the opposite of how you'd feel for a last meal. Okay. What would be your dream things to eat and drink? And if in this situation there's a there's a place, there's a, there's a location and any company you'd like to be in, then you can add those as well. Well, I would say, and I'll say it in about a minute because then I'm going to have to go. I would probably, yeah. uh, I would start with a really good Caesar salad with some incredible ciabatta bread that's warm and butter on it. Mm. I'd have a nice bowl of pasta. I'd probably either have some pizza with that or some chicken with that, just something else mm. to add to it. I'd have lots of cheese on the pasta. I'd have a glass of Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand. Oh, (laughs) and then I would finish it off with um, some wonderful dessert that maybe was lemony or chocolatey. Mm. Oh, great. And and I'm imagining this restaurant I go to that has a beautiful patio that they had well before the pandemic. And it's full of trees and lights. And and that's probably where I need it with uh, someone I love. So, oh, what a lovely answer! Thank you so much. Thank you for doing this silly podcast. Thank you, Jess. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And if you ever want me to come back, I will. I would, I would. It's been so joyful. Wow, what a lucky parsnip I am getting to talk to an oracle like that. Oofed. Um, Oofed doesn't really cover it, really. She is Elise Resch on Instagram. It's E-L-Y-S-E-R-E-S-C-H. And the website for more on all of this is intuitiveeating.org. And that's also where you'll find links to all the wonderful books she's written and been part of writing, including the um, Intuitive Eating book, the Intuitive Eating journal, the Intuitive Eating workbook, etc. I get loads of messages from listeners to Hoovering from people generally saying that they're ready to start sorting out their miserable relationship with eating. Well, if that's you, I cannot think of a better place to start, middle and eventually end with than the work of this truly incredible woman. Okay, um, tiny bit of admin. Don't forget to come to see Hoovering Live at the Leicester Comedy Festival on the 5th of February at 5.30pm with Jen Brister and Chiggs Palmer as my guests while we stuff a load of pizza in our face. Um, either come to see us live in Leicester with us, that would be my favourite, or stream it via Next Up Comedy. Um, I'm also previewing my new show, Wench, on the 6th of February at Leicester Comedy Festival. I'd love to see you there or throughout um, uh, London at various venues um, across February. All of the details for that are on my website, jessicafosterq.com that's also where you will find links uh, to buy tickets to any stand-up any of that um, follow us on social media at the hoovering pod we are on instagram and twitter i'm at jessica foster um, uh, and if you want to email me rather than just tweet or dm me you can do that through my website too jessicafosterq.com links to everything interesting that elise and i mentioned and everything interesting that i have just blabbed on about as ever are in the podcast notes huge thanks to acast for hosting the podcast hoovering is produced by emma caution and the music is by mike greenway until next week happy hoovering cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.